0: What a wonderful way to lead us in prayer. Thank you, Alicia. My son read the church's midweek email this week, and he said to me, Dad, I see that you're preaching on the prayer that you prayed over us when we'd go to bed at night. And I was so glad that that was still in our son's memory bank. I want to speak to you today from the book of Numbers, chapter 6, verses 22 through 27. To all believers, these are some of the most precious words in the Bible. I remember the church choir singing these words over me when I was ordained into pastoral ministry. And I remember praying these words over my children when I tucked them in for bed at night. I cherish the many times I've been able to speak these words over you, the church of the Lord Jesus. And as you're turning there in your Bibles, I just want to reflect on some of the things I really love about being a pastor in the church. I love meeting new people and seeing how God brings new faces all the time into the life of our church. And I love the building of relationships that happens when you're with the same people year after year after year and you see one another growing in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. I love visiting people in hospitals and in homes, and watching God weave trials into your life, and how you respond in faith in those trials, and how your faith is refined and comes forth as gold. I love the holidays when we worship together as a church on the the days like Christmas Eve and Good Friday and Easter and Pentecost. I love seeing children grow up in the church, starting with their parents bringing them to be dedicated as infants, and then watching the word of God go into their lives through children's and youth ministries. And then when these children finally say, I want to be a follower of Jesus, I want to be baptized. And then when they graduate and they go off to college or different places and they come back and tell the stories of how God is working in their lives, I love that. And I love talking with the senior adults of our church. I love that you are people, even though you've known the word of God for a long time, continue to discover God's grace afresh in his word. I love how you accept the limitations of aging with grace and how God works through the senior adults of this church so that they are ever full of sap and green like a tree planted in the house of the Lord. I love working with the leaders of this church The unity that we enjoy as we seek to shepherd the flock together. And I love preaching the word of God to the church. I love opening books of the Bible and seeing how Jesus and his gospel emerges from every page. I love mentoring young preachers and emerging preachers and seeing the team that God is developing. I love all of these things about being a pastor. But if you were to ask me, what is it that you love the most? What is it? Is there one action as a pastor that you most tenderly feel the poignancy of? What would that be? If I had to tell you the thing I love the most about being a pastor, I would say this. I love the benediction. I love pronouncing God's blessing over his people. Benediction means a good word. And I love telling you the good word that you are loved by him. I love telling you that his blessing rests on your life, even in the face of everything about you that makes you afraid and ashamed of yourself. I love telling you that because of what Christ has done, God's blessing rests on your life unchangeably, irrevocably, forever. I'm so grateful that this Sunday is not my last Sunday as a pastor in this church. I'm grateful that a new chapter remains yet to be written, but I recognize that this is a day of significant transition, and I feel The weight of it in my own heart. I want you to know that I have loved being your lead pastor in this church, and we look forward to continuing to be in fellowship and in ministry with you in the weeks and months to come. But this is an important day for all of us, and as I thought about what is it that I would want to speak to you more than anything on this Sunday, it's these words that I have pronounced over you many, many times through the years. Numbers chapter 6, beginning at verse 22. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. God's people have been redeemed from slavery in Egypt they're now going through the wilderness on their way to the promised land. They've left behind what's familiar to them, and God has promised a glorious future to them. But they're in this interim period where they're wondering, what's it going to be like? Are we going to be okay? Are my needs going to be met? It's into that context that God speaks these words of blessing Over his people. And whenever we hear these words spoken over our lives, God is working. God is working through this spoken word to do four things in us we desperately need him to do again and again and again. The first thing God is working to do through these words is that God is returning our hearts to the source of true blessing. And we need that. We need to be returned again and again to the source of true blessing because our hearts have a tendency to wander away from that source. How can you know where you're really looking for blessing in your life? You can know by asking yourself, What am I most afraid of losing? You can know by paying attention to the emotions, the dark emotions like anger and fear and despair and anxiety that rise up in your heart. Those emotions are like breadcrumbs. They're leading you down a trail that will take you to the real object of your desires. Maybe for you, the blessed life is the financially independent and secure life. So you hold on to your finances very tightly and you check the stock market all the time, and you feel anxious if things are going down. Because for you, a blessed life means I always have plenty to spare. Well, maybe you're someone who thinks, well, I've recognized the emptiness of that. I know that financial prosperity cannot bring blessing. What really matters to me is having friends who love me. Or children who get along and want to spend time together and who love spending time with their mom and dad. Or what really matters to me is my marriage, my husband, my wife, either getting married or the one that I have. Or maybe what really matters to you is you wish you had a better husband or a better wife. It's relationships that your heart is craving. And if things are going well relationally, you feel blessed. But when relationships are strained and when friends disappoint and people don't come through for you the way you expected, then you are dejected because for you, you are seeking blessing in human relationships. And maybe you're someone who says, well, I've learned not to put my hope in human beings. I know they're always going to let you down. And what really matters to me is health. If you've got health, you've got everything you need. And so fitness and health and diet, these things, they're they're what really constitutes the blessed life for you. Or maybe for you, it's your job, success at work. These are the things that you're living for. And, And whatever it is, God has a word for these ways of seeking blessing. And his word is this, Jeremiah 2, verse 13. My people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me The fountain of living water, and they have hewed out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Whether you're turning to the bucket of wealth, or to the bucket of family and friends and relationships, or the bucket of fame or success or power, God says there's a hole in that bucket. That's a broken cistern that will not hold water. But in this word of blessing, he's calling us back to the fountain of living water. Just as he spoke to the children of Israel through Moses and Aaron as they're in the wilderness making their way to the promised land, so now he says to us today, remember, I am the God from whom all blessing flows. Don't forget it. And the way he reminds us of this in this blessing is three times his divine covenant name is spoken. The name of the Lord, Yahweh, the Lord, the Father. The Lord, the Son, the Lord, the Holy Spirit, God, the three in one, is the source of all joy. He is the spring of all blessing. He is the only one who can truly satisfy. And in case we didn't get it in the threefold repetition of the divine name, he says it right right away again at the end of the passage in those last words of verse 27, I will bless them. I am the one from whom All blessing flows. God is telling us here, I have made you for myself, and your heart is going to forever be restless until it finds its rest in me. And once you've come to God, and once you've drunk of Him, and you've tasted of His goodness, it makes you want to come back for more and more and more. I love how A.W. Tozer expresses it in his prayer. In the book, The Pursuit of God, he says, Oh God, I have tasted your goodness, and it has both satisfied me and made me thirsty for more. I am painfully conscious of my need for further grace. I'm ashamed of my lack of desire. Oh God, the triune God, I want to want you. I long to be filled with longing. I thirst to be made more thirsty still. Show me your glory, I pray, so that I may know you indeed. Begin in mercy a new work of love within me. Say to my soul, rise up, my love, my fair one, and come away. Then give me grace to rise and follow you up from this misty lowland where I have wandered so long. This blessing, every time you hear these words, God wants you to see it as a beacon of light calling you up from those misty lowlands, from those broken cisterns, from those polluted streams, saying, come back to the fountain of living waters. Come and find your satisfaction and your rest and your joy in me alone. God's calling us back to the source. The second thing God is working to do whenever these words are spoken over our lives is that he is enlarging our understanding of what it really means to be blessed. And we need to have our understanding enlarged of what it means to be blessed because if ever there was a Christian cliche, it's this word, hashtag blessed. How many things do people attach to that? But the antidote to this cliche is not to stop using the word. It's way too important a word in the Bible to just throw it into the trash bin. What we need to do is we need to recover the biblical meaning of this word. We need to let God fill this word blessed and blessing with all the rich meaning that he intends for it to have. So he starts with these words in verse 24. The Lord bless you and keep you. And in this Beautiful phrase. He's speaking of God's providing for all our needs. God's protection over our lives. God's guarding us from all harm. He's saying to us in these words of blessing, whether it's food or clothing or housing, your heavenly father knows what you need before you even ask him. And he is committed to taking care of you. Your God will take care of you. He will guide your future as he has your past, as we sang this this morning. And he is orchestrating every aspect of your life to be in sync with his purposes, to do good to you and to do good to others through you. And he is even weaving your suffering into that plan so that it actually becomes a means of blessing to you and to others. When we hear these words, the Lord bless you and keep you, God is promising that I will be able to keep you from all the schemes of sin, from all the schemes of Satan, and from all your adversaries in this world so that nothing they do will ultimately be able to sabotage my purposes to save you. God is saying, I who began a good work in you will be faithful to carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So God's blessing in our lives encompasses all these things. Provision, protection. But is that all there is to God's blessing? Is God's blessing limited to providing for our needs and protecting us from harm? And the answer to that question is a resounding no. And you'll notice as you read these three words of blessing in this passage, that with each phrase... There's an increasing number of words and consonants. If you looked at it in the Hebrew language, you'd see how this is a poem that's exquisitely designed to build in us a heightened awareness of how generous God is to us. One commentator says, this gradual escalation conveys in literary form the sense of God's multiplying and expanding gifts. That's what God wants us to hear as we hear this blessing. He wants us to hear that I have a goodness that is multiplying, that is expanding, and that is cascading over into my people's lives. So, after provision and protection in verse 24, we read the second phrase in verse 25 The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious. Unto you. Those are breathtaking words. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. Every child longs to see his father's face beaming with delight on him. Every daughter longs to see in the face of her father a look. Of approval, a look of delight. And some children grow up never seeing that. What they see in their father's face is a distracted look, or a look that's buried in an iPhone, or an indifferent face, or a disapproving face. And if that's you, if that was your experience with your earthly father, you know that even well into adulthood, there remains in your heart an aching, an aching for the shining face of your father. On Friday night, Kate and I visited the home of our son and daughter-in-law, who we hadn't seen for a few days, and, and we're always eager to spend time with them and to visit them. But of course, there's a 10-month-old granddaughter that is also part of the draw, part of the appeal to uh, visit. And we can't get enough of her little face. And as I said, it had been several days since we'd seen them. So Nate's given me a garage door opener that I can get into his house at any time. And I snuck into the house and I quietly went to the landing that looks down into the family room, and there she was, Charlie, playing on the ground with all her little toys, and she didn't hear me come into the house yet. So I snuck up on her, and I bent down, and I was gazing at her, and I was waiting for her to notice me. And when she saw my face beaming at her, her face lit up from ear to ear. And she started moving like this. And she started clapping her hands. And that filled my joy tank for a good month or more. That was all I needed. And I'm wondering, is that how you imagine it's like between your Heavenly Father and you? Can you even imagine it? When you think of what is the look in your Father's face, When he sees you, does it even cross your mind that he's actually beaming with delight at you? Is that in your conception of God, your father? Will you clap your hands with joy when your gaze meets with his, when you finally see his face? That is the blessing that God instructs Aaron and his sons, the high priest, to pronounce over his people. The Lord wants his people to experience his face beaming with delight over our lives. He wants us living under the shining face of his approval. And he doesn't want us only to experience this for fleeting moments, sporadically, he wants us to know that we are the object of his constant, careful attention. So, in this last phrase, he adds in verse 26 The Lord lift up his countenance upon you. The Lord look on you with favor and give you peace, shalom, wholeness. This goes beyond the look of delight. Now, God is saying, I want you to know that you, my people, have my undivided attention. My eyes are fixed upon you. My eyes roam to and fro throughout the earth. And when I see you, my people, I fix my gaze on you to strongly support you. I hear your prayers. I'm attentive to your every need. God wants us to experience his presence, not just in a general way. Yes, we know that God is everywhere present. But as Alicia so beautifully directed our hearts in prayer this morning, he wants us to know that his omniscience and his omnipresence is focused on us to do us good all the time. His face beams with delight and his eyes are riveted on us. Imagine you're at a dinner table are these big, long tables, and there's 14 guests around that table. You're all in each other's presence. You're all sharing in some semblance of conversation. You can see them, and they can see you, and you can speak to any one of them if you want to speak across the table. But seated right next to you is a guest, and his face turns toward you, and your face turns toward him and you're having a conversation with him that's much more intimate, much more personal, that's what God wants each of his people to experience with him. Not just the sense that he's in the room, not just the sense that he's everywhere present, but the knowledge that he is paying close, personal attention to you. That you are a face-to-face, known, loved child of God in relationship with him. Moses himself knew something of this in his relationship to the Lord. For we read in Exodus thirty-three, eleven, the Lord Yahweh would speak with Moses face to face just as a man speaks with his friend. And now here in this blessing, God is telling Moses to say to all of his people that I want to have the same kind of relationship with them. I'm not just speaking to them in general here. God is speaking to each of his people individually. The yous in this blessing are singular, not plural. So God blesses his people as a whole, but God wants you to know no one is lost in the crowd. No one's a nameless face to him. He knows each of you individually. He wants each of you to know the blessing of face-to-face, intimate, personal friendship with him. So how can this be? How can it be? Well, thirdly, every time we hear these words of blessing spoken over us, God is reminding us of the only reason he can bless us. And we need that. Because I can imagine lots of us thinking today, oh, this sounds really great. I, I love the thought of God's face beaming with delight over me. That's wonderful. But there's no way. God is smiling at me this week. Not after how he saw me blow up at my kids. Not after how he saw me seething with lust and going down into that cesspool. Not after how he heard me lie to my boss. No way. God can look at the way I've acted this week and actually be happy to see me. How could that be? I've drunk far more than I should from those broken cisterns this week. And I'm choking now. I'm choking on the vomit of my own regret. How can God's blessing rest on me? I don't want anyone to think that I'm suggesting that while we're sinning, God is smiling as if there's not a thing we can do to displease him. I am not saying that. Anyone who's a loving parent knows that's not how it works. Our children are the object of our delight. But when their disobedience is tearing the house down, we don't just smile and say, oh, isn't that lovely? Aren't they wonderful? To the contrary, because we love them, because we delight in them, we discipline them, and we correct them, and sometimes we frown. Sometimes we frown. But their disobedience does not mean we fire them. We may frown temporarily, but we never fire our kids from our family. We don't kick them out. I think the Puritan poet John Donne expressed it very sensitively. Look at what he says. Though thou with clouds of anger do disguise thy face, yet through that mask I know those eyes, which, though they turn away sometimes, they never will despise. God, your eyes, they never will despise. How is it? How is it that these eyes of God, though they turn away sometimes, they never will despise those who belong to him? Even when we are unfaithful, even when we are rebellious, even though we never deserve to see his smiling face again, how can it be that those eyes will always be filled with tenderness and love and his face will ultimately and eternally beam with delight over us, his children? How can that be? Well, I can assure you that this blessing that God speaks over his people is not based on our performance We know that from the context of the text itself. If you look at the verses immediately preceding this blessing, you'll see instructions for taking a Nazarite vow. To be a Nazarite was to live a life of utter consecration and singular devotion to God. These were the most religious, most spiritual, most devoted members of the community of Israel. And it's interesting, as you read the Old Testament, we don't find many actual examples of Nazarites in the Bible. There are at least 12 passages that talk about Nazarites. But you know how many actual people are named a Nazarite in the Old Testament? One. You remember who? Samson. 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 He was set apart to be a Nazarite. And how did Samson's life, a complete consecration to God, turn out in the end? How did he do with that? Not so great, you may recall. So if God's blessing is based on our performance, we, like Samson, are doomed. But isn't it striking that in this chapter, talking about the Nazarites, the really spiritual members of the community of Israel, isn't it striking that the blessing at the end isn't just for them? It's for all the people. And notice also, God doesn't instruct the priests to merely pray for blessing upon the Israelites. I used to say the benediction wrongly. I used to say, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. And then somewhere along the line, I realized, why am I doing that? That's not what it says. This isn't a prayer that God will do something. This is a pronouncement that God authorizes his priests to declare over his people. The Lord does bless you. The Lord will do this in your life. You can count on this. He instructs them to pronounce his blessing over their lives. Chris Costaldo writes, Blessing is more than a polite wish. Its articulation shaped the trajectories of lives and nations. Blessings illustrate the effective movement of sovereign grace from heaven to earth. So the reason we can be confident God's free and unwavering blessing is because of the effective movement of God's sovereign grace from heaven to earth. There was only one time in the service of the tabernacle that the priest's could pronounce this blessing. There was only one time where it fit into the order of worship, and that was at the end of the service. And the reason that's so important is because something had to happen earlier in the service for this blessing to be applied to the people of God. Blood had to be shed. Sacrifices for sin had to be made. Blood must be be shed before blessing can be said over the people of God. And now those sacrifices throughout the Old Testament we know were just shadows. They were just types of the only sacrifice that could really take away sins once and for all. God can be gracious and pour out his blessing on sinners because God had a plan to send his son in sovereign grace from heaven down to earth. And Jesus, when he came, He's the only one who really lived like a true Nazirite. He's the only one who lived a life of complete devotion, complete consecration, who kept God's law in every detail. There was nothing that brought more delight to the heart of Jesus than to obey his Father, to do his will. And he earned the blessing of God over his life by his obedience. So much so that when Jesus was on the Mount of Transfiguration, the Father's beaming face of delight spoke blessing over his Son, and his Son, his whole body and his whole being, radiated with his Father's shining face. That's the blessing Jesus rightfully enjoyed. But what wondrous love is this, that he who enjoyed the epitome of his Father's shining face was willing to endure the antithesis of it. He was numbered among the transgressors. He was willing to lay his life down and surrender his head and his hands and his feet to the crown of thorns and the cross of wood. And there on the cross, what did Jesus do? He became a curse for us. And instead of hearing The Lord bless you and keep you. Jesus heard the howls of hell shrieking. The Lord curse you and damn you. And instead of hearing the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As the father turned his face away. And instead of the Lord lifting up his countenance upon his son, Jesus felt the full-throttled wrath of God fall on him. And creation itself turned off the lights and left him in outer darkness. When instead of peace, Jesus bore the full brunt of the anguish that our sins deserved. But now, because he went into war to do battle against our sin and against Satan, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. He himself is our peace. And we can now sing, Now my debt is paid. It is paid in full by the precious blood of my Jesus spilled. Now the curse of sin has no hold on me. Whom the Son sets free, Oh, is free indeed. The Son was cursed so that we can be confident that the blessing of God rests irrevocably on our lives now and forever. But this blessing does change the trajectory of our lives. There's one more thing I want us to see. When he pronounces his blessing on us, God is reshaping our identity as he sends us out into the world. That's what we see in verse 27. As they speak this blessing, so shall they put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them, God says. And that name is a mark of ownership. God's saying, you belong to me now. You're part of my family. When an orphan is adopted into a family, she gets a new name. And with that new name comes a new identity. And she says, now I have a new family. And when you become part of a family, you don't just get a boss you get a father. And with a father and a family comes a new security. Now I belong to someone who will not leave me nor forsake me. And with that new security comes a new accountability. Now in all I do, I want to honor the name of the one who has blessed me so richly. As we go into, that, as we go into the world, we bear that holy name on our lives. We represent him. You, the people of God, you are the fragrance and aroma of Christ. You take the name of Jesus with you wherever you go. I want you to realize, this week, you are the closest thing to Jesus that many people will ever see this week. You are the one most like Jesus that many people in your life will see. You bear his name. You represent him. He owns you. That's what happens in baptism. When we say in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, that's not just some empty ritual. That that means you have a new identity now. You belong to him. As I was thinking about this, I was reminded of a song that we'd often sing at my little church that I went to when I was a very young child. It was a Pentecostal church and we'd sing this song at the end of the services and I didn't really understand what it meant then. But now I can hear my grandmother in the background singing it. It means a lot to me now. We'd say, take the name of Jesus with you, child of sorrow and of woe. It will joy and comfort give you take it then where'er you go precious name oh how sweet hope of earth and joy of heaven precious name oh how sweet hope of earth and joy of heaven his name is on you his blessing rests over you let's thank him for that Lord, may we live with a growing confidence that we are blessed by you. All this, Lord, is in Jesus, and I pray that no one here would remain separated from him today. As we move toward this body, this, this bread, and this cup at this table, Lord, I pray that Jesus would be precious to each and every one of us, that we would taste and see that you are good. Amen. One of the other things I love about being a pastor is the Lord's Supper. And I'm so glad we're a church that has embraced the practice of doing this every week. If we need to hear the word every week, why would we not also long for the tangible tasting of the grace of God in the gospel every week that he gives us at this table? So let us now remember the one who bore the curse so that the blessing of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit can rest and remain on our lives the gospel, the good news from God, is that everything you and I deserved because of our sin fell on Jesus instead. And everything that Jesus deserved because of his righteousness now can be freely lavished on us. That's the gospel. And There is no blessing outside of Jesus Christ. None. Do not gamble your everlasting joy and your everlasting peace on your own performance. Don't make that wager. I can tell you, you and I have already blown it. If we're going to experience everlasting joy and blessing, it can come from one place only. It's in Jesus. All the promises of God are yes and amen in him, the Bible says. Jesus has taken the curse that sinners deserve so that sinners can deserve the blessing, so that sinners can experience the blessing only Jesus deserves. So if you haven't yet turned to him and received him as your savior, I appeal to you right now, be reconciled to God, be made right with God. The way you do that is say, God, I am a sinner and I put my trust in Jesus, your son. I need him to be my savior. You can do that as God's people are taking this bread and this cup for this table is for those who belong to Jesus, who bear the name of Jesus. For those of us who do, this is a time for us to return, to come back from those broken cisterns that can hold no water, to come back to the fountain of living waters. And he beckons us to himself. He welcomes us. Repentance is a grace from God. So we're going to do a quiet prayer of repentance today. I'm going to give you a moment to confess your sins, to return to the Lord. I want you to just hear this wonderful word from an early preacher of the church, John Chrysostom. I love this when I read this this week. He said, be ashamed when you sin. Don't be ashamed when you repent. Sin is the wound. Repentance is the medicine. Sin is followed by shame. Repentance is followed by boldness. Satan has overturned this order and given boldness to sin and shame to repentance. Let's, by the grace of God, fly in the face of Satan now and enjoy the gift of repentance. Let's return to the Lord, taking in the medicine of repentance before we drink in the balm of Christ's body and blood. Let's pray.